This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Lisa Abramowitz in for both Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5 p.m. in the City of London. Coming up on the program, Brexit front and center as some of the hardliners uh, gain some steam. The euro area economic reading continuing to sour as more confusion emerges from the EU uh, elections, as well as, of course, uh, trade. U.S. and China both getting a little bit more hardlined in their rhetoric. But right now, let's get you up to speed on the top stories. Here's Charlie Pelley. Hi, thank you very much, Lisa Bromowitz. European Union may reward its Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, with the top job of leading the European Commission as momentum is building behind the Frenchman's informal candidacy ahead of a summit in Brussels to negotiate who will head the bloc's main institutions. American companies counting on China for a major part of their growth have targets on their backs as Beijing and Washington ratchet up trade war tensions. President Trump's decision to blacklist Huawei Technologies, the Chinese maker of smartphones, while also threatening bans on other Chinese tech companies, could open the door to retaliation against American brands such as Apple and others. Mohamed El Arian, the chief economic advisor at Allianz, has been named president of Cambridge University's Queen's College, the son of an Egyptian diplomat. El Arian was an undergrad at Cambridge in the late 70s, where he studied economics. He also holds a doctorate from Oxford University and is a Bloomberg columnist. That is the latest from the news desk. Lisa Bromwitz, happy Tuesday. Back to you. Happy Tuesday, Charlie Pellet. Thank you so much for that. We begin today with our top story. Brexit upended Britain's established political order in European Parliament elections, with both the ruling Conservatives and the main opposition Labour Party scoring their worst results in decades. Theresa May announced Friday that she would step down from her position as UK Prime Minister. May's spokesman James Slack also indicated UK government is unlikely to put its withdrawal agreement bill to Parliament next week. Joining me now, I'm very pleased to say, Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and Richard Jones, FX and rates strategist. So, uh, Marcus, things seem to be increasingly a muddle, certainly confused even more by the EU elections. Uh, Where are we in terms of the likelihood here of a hard Brexit? Is it getting more likely or less likely, likely right now? I don't think a mass amount has changed. I mean, technically, you must say it's risen, and that's why sterling is down against the dollar. Because, uh, in essence, we used a Theresa May who, who clearly was not going to go down that route. And Parliament has said it won't either. But if we get a new uh, Tory leader who's likely to be Boris Johnson, at the moment he's saying quite clearly that he's going to stick to the October 31st deadline. Therefore, it's slightly more likely. But he equally made very strong, uh, clearly... Uh, point that he will he will push for a, another deal if there is any chance of that he just he wants to make sure there's the there are, I hate to use the word backstop yeah but uh, uh of october 30 31 to make sure that the eu know that they they have to give a little bit more ground so richard uh come on in here I, i'm curious about nigel farage and, and his win with the european union elections how does that color this debate at all 
Well, I think it's uh, it's actually scared the Tory Party witless because the Tory Party is now on nine percent in these uh, in these last European parliamentary elections, which is dismal. And I think a lot of the leadership candidates, including the the the, the bookie's favourite, Boris Johnson, has said that the reason that the the Conservative Party suffered so badly is because they didn't deliver Brexit, and and that that deadline won't, isn't going anywhere. The European Union is not going to renegotiate. They've already said that several times. So it looks to me like um, there's going to be a big decision to be made. And because Nigel Farage did so well in the in these recent elections, and because he's saying that it's better to leave without a deal than than not leave at all, I think that we are we are heading towards the default scenario of a no-deal Brexit, unless something changes between now and then. So do you think that, Richard, it makes sense uh, for the uh, the pound to sell off even more than we've seen so far? Yeah, I think the pound sold off over the past couple of weeks when it became clear that Theresa May's days were numbered. Now, I think we probably track sideways for the next couple of weeks until the starting the starting point for the leadership election, which I think is the week of the 10th of June, if I'm not mistaken, Marcus might be might know that better than I do. Marcus, uh, but I think that that week is when it is when we'll really start to get uh, more movement in the pound. Between now and then, I think we track sideways. Okay, so we track sideways, and you agree with that, Marcus? Yeah, she steps uh, down. She said, "No, I think I think the pound's going to edge down." I, I, what I, I mentioned on radio earlier today, I think the pound is very prone to being squeezed here because. It's so obvious it's going down, isn't it? Because the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Everything's falling apart. And the reality is is that stunning is cheap and the economy is doing better than Europe. And in that sense, even the US is not doing quite as well as it once was. So stunning is nowhere near as bad as it was uh, potentially. And and the reason why stunning has fallen so much, the the economic situation is, is evident the political situation is about as bad as it can get. There's only upside from here. I have no idea what it's going to come from, but the point is, is that <laughs> you know you you can't you can't just look at, uh, at at Boris Johnson and think that he's going to do nothing because he will be able to do something. And I I have to say I think you can't just read into the the the, the, the Europeans won't budge. They must budge. Their deal has not worked. They've tried very hard to bully the. The UK into into a deal which has simply failed to get passed, despite all the best efforts of Theresa May through Parliament, through anything. At some point, there has to be some reality, and maybe it doesn't have to be Boris Johnson, but whoever. That, that at some point, there's going to have to be some reality that if both sides and they both sides do need a deal, at some point there will be something before October thirty first. Hold on a and second. That's sterling positive. Marcus, it's interesting. You're you're saying, but two things here, right? Which is number one, uh, all the bad news has already been priced in, and two, the likelihood that people are going to come to their senses to some degree and come up with something that's going to help the economy uh, seems highly likely. Which is not the worst case scenario. I just want to understand that. So, I mean, Richard, do you think that the market has priced in the worst case scenario? And what is the worst case scenario? I don't think the market has priced in the worst case scenario because I think. Uh, there's two situations that I think Sterling suffers from. One is a no-deal Brexit, and the other is a Labour government. And I'd say the uh, probability of both has risen since Theresa May uh, gave up the prime ministership. And so I think those two scenarios are the ones that that really will spook the pound. I don't think we're out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination on either of those two fronts. Until we get clarity, I think the pound 
the, the, the bias will be down, I think, in the very near term, it's sideways. But until those two things are resolved, I think the pound uh, faces more downward pressure. Marcus, you want to respond? Yeah, I think he's absolutely spot on in, in pointing out, uh, no offence to Richie, he, he, the, the, the known knowns. We know that, and that's all well known. The, the reality <laughs> is, is that what happens when something changes? Because, you know, look, there's clearly no way that they're going to try and create a situation whereby Jeremy can call can come in. Corbyn is, is is the big threat, but and the reality is, is if something gets done and, and Europe gives a little inch, it gets wrapped up. There's another deal comes through. We have a, a different leader. Doesn't have to be Boris. And, and there's there's a lot of upside for Sterling. Well, both of you are sticking with me, Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist. Love having you both. And this really is uh, the question, which is, as the known or unknown knowns, known unknowns, at this point, (laughs) I've lost track of my knowns and unknowns, but we don't know anything. That's the bottom line. And we know we don't know anything about Brexit. Uh, But as that becomes clear, what is the market currently pricing in? And, you know, what are the potential chances at this point for some sort of positive, constructive outcome? Outcome at a time when it's unclear who's even going to lead and who is going to be the next prime minister. Right now, we're looking uh, at a rally in the U.S. We're seeing the Nasdaq up five tenths of one percent uh, across the board in Europe. Things ended lower after those European Union elections, which is what we're going to be talking up uh, next. Uh, we're going to also be talking about some economic data that came out a bit better than people had expected. So uh, perhaps. I don't know, green shoots. I know John Farrow would absolutely massacre me for using that expression. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon to the city of London. I am Lisa Abramowitz, not Jonathan Farrow, not Guy Johnson. They both have the day off. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. Just gone 5.10 p.m. in the city of London. We are looking at uh, mixed markets across the world. In the U.S., we're seeing a rally. Uh, Europe ended uh, down across the board. Meanwhile, we are seeing the pound losing uh, versus the dollar, the weakest since uh, May 23rd, but uh, at one point, the weakest since earlier this year. Uh, meanwhile, we are getting economic data out of the Eurozone. It's actually not terrible. Uh, Euro area economic confidence had unexpectedly improved in May, snapping an almost year-long streak of declines when the region was battling through a host of struggles. Improvement driven by industry and the strongest increase in production expectations in more than six years. This is despite the ongoing question about export orders declining and generally a negative business climate. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist, both of you still with me. Marcus, I want to start with you. Is this the beginning of an upturn where things are not going to be quite as bad as they've seemed for quite a while in the Euro region? No. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, Moving yeah, right along. Okay. End off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Next question. Now, I, I, I just think, where is the bounce? Why is the bounce? Everyone seems to presume there's going to be a bounce. It's hilarious to me. I, I, I totally get the fact that the domestic economy in Germany is perfectly excellent. Wage, wage growth is clearly coming through. But the driver of the uh, German economy for the last sort of, 20, 30, 40 years has been exports. And China, its biggest... Uh, customer, it would seem, and Iran and various other different components are falling away. And you look at every single indicator, IFO, PMI, manufacturing, all the various different indicators, they all keep on going lower. Not one bounce, nowhere. Now, France has bounced. Now, clearly, there was a gilet jaune 
problem for them, and, and, and they seem to have some form of uh, ability to resolve itself there. Spain's going well, and, and Portugal's not doing too badly. The, the, the European economy as a whole is, is not in, in, in an overall bad shape, but Italy is clearly in a bad way, and Germany is not recovering at all. Therefore, I don't see why everyone seems to think automatically there's going to be a second half bounce. All right. And, and what it's going to be. Well, so Richard, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think Marcus is right to be uh, skeptical. I think there's every reason to believe that maybe things aren't nearly as bad as everybody's painted it in the first half of the year. But, you know, one one economic confidence uh, a beat does not uh, does not a trend make. So we're going to have to wait and see. I think. I think Marcus represents the the market consensus in that the European economy is in a slowdown that is uh, going to be long-lasting. And I think there's very good reasons to think that. But I think a lot depends on what happens um, in the global economy. And and I think... this one month where we get a, a, a bit of a rebound is not necessarily pretending a, a longer-term trend. So, and I guess that, Richard, uh, to Marcus's point, how much of this relies on Germany and with trade with uh, China? I mean, how much is this, is this entire economic picture hinging on that? I think a lot of it does. I think, I think uh, looking forward, that's going to be the, the big determinant. Um, in, in sort of the past six months or so, the one thing that's really stood out is the domestic demand, uh, primarily in Germany, but I think also in France we've seen uh, reasonable domestic demand, uh, kind of decent wage gains, those kind of things driving the domestic economy. But because of the what I call the, the global headwinds, that's meant that we've had uh, a slowdown throughout the uh, sort of the end of 18, early 19. But but the domestic economy is in reasonable shape, but I don't think it can carry the whole economy if we get a continuation of what I would call these these global headwinds. Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist, Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg opinion columnist, both sticking with us. I should point out uh, that there has been some momentum. It is currently, I'm looking at the Citigroup European uh, Surprise Index, and it is the least negative. That's right. It's still negative, but it's the least negative uh, that it's been going back to September. So positive momentum into possibly not negative territory. Wow. Mind bending. Meanwhile, I've got the negative yielding uh, pool of debt widening to its most since 2016. So still a pretty solid backdrop. Coming up, we have much more, uh, including talking about what is going on with the U.S. and China. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Hello, hello. I am Lisa Abramowitz. I am in for Guy Johnson and Jonathan Farrow. This is uh, the Cable broadcasting live on DAB Digital. Angela Merkel dealing with one difficult issue after another. The latest, she has decided that Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who took over as leader of the Christian Democratic Union in December, is not up to the country's top job. This according to two officials with knowledge of her thinking. As a result, the officials say the chancellor has become more determined than ever to stay in power until her term ends in 2021. Joining me now, uh, still with us, Marcus Ashworth. He is Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Richard Jones, FX and rates strategist. Richard, Angela Merkel forever. Is that what we're uh, what this is adding up to? Well, it's certainly uh, certainly the, the chancellor flexing her muscles and saying that she won't be forced out of office before her term ends in 2021. And, and from, from a market standpoint, the fact that that 
that does provide some continuity and and the devil that you know, if I could put it that way, um, I think it's probably good news for markets. I mean, at the end of the day, I think uh, Kramp Karenbauer had been maneuvering within the party to try to get uh, Merkel to exit the chancellorship uh, before her term ended in 2021. And this is just a, a very firm uh, move by Angela Merkel to stamp her authority and say, no, I'm actually not going anywhere until my term ends. Although we've seen Marcus, that uh, Angela Merkel has lost some of her majority, has lost some of her political power. So what does a move like this do to her on that uh, on that sphere? Well, you have to put it in the context of the European elections where the SPD, the, the sort of partnership and the Grand Coalition have, have lost. So it's not like there's much push on the other side. The Greens have done very well. The whole reason why Merkel is, is where she is is because she... She took the uh, of unfortunate events of Fukushima in in 2020 in Japan, and basically cancelled nuclear power in Germany, which is I think a disastrous decision on the way it's it's panned out. But net and net, it, it neutered the the Greens at the time when they were likely to threaten her for power. She's now in a situation where she's given away power to AKK. There's a reason why we call her AKK, because you can't really get head around her her name. But the point is, is that. Um, what's happened is that AKK's had a couple of bad media experiences. She's not done well in these elections here, particularly. Uh, the SPD have fallen away even, even worse. The Greens are rising up again. Merkel knows how to beat the Greens or at least work with them. And she sees an opportunity here for the next two years to not be completely shoved out of power. And uh, AKK has, has moved too early without enough backing and uh, she's been learned a lesson here. And either she bounces back aggressively or she's gone. And we see uh, Mertz back again, which is the other um, candidate, I think, who, who may well end up in 2021 uh, doing better. So it, it's interesting for Merkel. She wants to have the next two years. She wants to decide with Macron who are going to be the replacements uh to the, the commission and all the various different commissioners yeah. and indeed the ECB head. Yeah, so actually, Richard, and then this brings us back to a point that you were making, that, that her uh, sort of solidification of her power is positive for markets. And yet I'm wondering what her position will be with uh, Dr. Jens Weidman as he sort of is one of the potential candidates to rise to uh, Mario Draghi's, to become Mario Draghi's successor, but is thought to be somewhat hawkish, uh, more inclined to raise rates faster or certainly pair back stimulus. I mean, does she want him? Is she going to plug him, uh, given the fact that she now has uh, more power? I think I think it's more of a. You have to look at what's going on in the European Union in the fun, in in the context of a bunch of big important jobs to fill, and and Merkel's priority right now is to get the presidency of the European Commission for Manfred Weber, who is the leader of the European People's Party in the European Parliament. She has has said that she will fight tooth and nail to get him that that presidency. If that falls short and she is forced to back somebody else, her price might be Jens Weidman as head of the ECB. But this is all part and parcel of sort of a horse trading exercise that I think is beginning uh, this evening and will be going on in the coming days, weeks, and months. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, the Merkel's priority right now is to get Manfred Weber the presidency of the European Commission. What what do you think, Marcus? Uh, I I disagree. Weber's gone. Weber's not happening. He he is he is always was a stalking horse. EVP. Don't put anything to what what Manfred Weber is not capable of doing this job, and everyone knows that. Um, 
Whether Vibin gets the ECB is a completely different story. But there's a so much longer to go in this. There's another six months at least of horse trading. And what uh, Merkel has done today is, is, is stop AKK trying to throw her out and, and lose her power straight away. She's here for the next two years. She's going to be there at the table. What, what comes out of it will be uh, she hasn't had the complete power so she may or may not have had to, to put her, her, her true position through. But she is not going to um, die in a ditch from Manfred Weber. That's for absolutely sure. Uh, whether Vibin gets or not, I don't think she cares either. The, the, the actual real interesting thing is, is does Merkel herself replace Juncker as commission head? I don't think it is, but but she's not going to go out the fight and we'll see what she's got, but she'll, she'll get something out of this. Well, and Richard, just widening out to the broader EU elections, is Angela Merkel's sort of uh, assertion of her power... Uh, emblematic of what we saw more broadly in the EU elections, where we saw the centre maintain more ground than people maybe had been expecting. Well, the one thing about Angela Merkel, and it's a problem that every politician in Germany has, is that she's the most popular politician in Germany right now. Her approval ratings are considerably higher than any other party leaders, including including Kramp Karrenbauer's. And so, yeah, I think that I think the centre held. I think the centre held uh, uh, in most parts of the European Union, certainly on an, on a European parliament uh, uh, viewpoint it, it held and and the populace didn't do as as well and didn't seize control like a lot of people were saying they were and i think that's that's something that surprised people um and and merkel is someone to reckon with and she, she's going to be here for another two years and she remains the most popular politician in germany richard jones marcus ashworth thank you both so much uh, for your time and your insights richard jones fx and rate strategist marcus ashworth bloomberg opinion columnist uh, coming up we are going to turn our focus from the european union to the u.s in particular u.s and china trade discussions or perhaps the lack thereof president trump said the u.s not ready to make a deal yet, but he won't rule one out. Meanwhile, people are shifting their rhetoric from trade war to tech war. We're going to deal with all of that coming up on The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Lisa Abramoisen for both Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. Just gone 5.30 p.m. in the City of London. Let's get you caught up on all the top stories. We have our own Charlie Pellet. And I thank you very much, Lisa Abramowitz. Back to work Tuesday for U.S. investors. Apple is out with a new iPod Touch showing support for a product that hadn't been updated in four years. After long being overshadowed by the iPhone, the new model will be priced starting at about 170 pounds and will contain Apple's own A10 processor. Apple says it will allow for a better gaming experience. The European Union may reward its Brexit negotiator Michel Barnier with the top job of leading the European Commission as momentum is building behind the Frenchman's informal candidacy ahead of a Brussels summit. And Mohamed El Arian, the chief economic advisor at Allianz, also a Bloomberg columnist, has been named president of Cambridge University's Queen 
Queen's College. The son of an Egyptian diplomat, Hilarion was an undergrad at Cambridge in the late 70s, where he studied economics. He also holds a doctorate from Oxford University. That is the latest from the news desk. Lisa Bromowitz, back to you. Thank you so much, Charlie Pellet. Right now we are looking at a rally that is extending gains in the U.S. NASDAQ up five-tenths of one percent. S&P uh, now up two-tenths of one percent. The Dow up about the same. This comes even though the U.S. is hardening its rhetoric against China. We have President Trump uh, saying that American tariffs and Chinese goods could go up very, very substantially, very easily. Uh, his comments coming after trade talks between the two countries stalled earlier this month, each side blaming each other, each side uh, amping up the rhetoric. Joining us now, Michael Regan. He is senior markets editor and co-host of the What Goes Up podcast. And Romain Bostic, markets correspondent and what you miss, uh, co-host of, at Bloomberg Television here. Thank you both so much uh, for joining me. So, Michael, why, Mike, why is it that the market is just shrugging off the escalating rhetoric, certainly by President Trump right now? Well, one thing I would point out, and this this may not be a satisfying answer, but it is month end. Uh, this is not a satisfying. Answer. <laughs> I didn't think you'd be satisfied. But thank with this you. Answer. I appreciate your. But, but you know, you, <laughs> you you look at if you just boil it down to the two main ETFs, one tracking the S P five hundred down four percent, the other tracking the bond market up four percent. There's naturally going to be a little bit of sort of uh, you know return to mean for both of them, a little bit of gains in stocks and uh, declines in treasuries. Not that we're seeing declines in treasuries, and it doesn't always work, right? But the the sort of pressure is there for this type of day to happen, to have a little bit of a bounce uh, because of rebalancing. That's my this, story. Uh, you're sticking to it? Yep, that yep. is, that is I, conviction beyond conviction. <laughs> maybe the story doesn't always work, but maybe, Romaine, can you give us a better story? Uh, I can't, but I can tell you this. I mean, look. I, I, you know, All right. Well, yeah, I know the show's off to, yeah. to a wild start already. Uh, so, but look, I mean, when you look at what's the the price action here in equities, I think you sort of have to balance that out with the price action that you're seeing in other assets as well, whether it's what you're seeing uh, in fixed income or whether or what you're seeing in uh, FX. And I think that that you are seeing a little bit more caution. You're seeing a little bit more of the downside risk of the trade war being priced in on those on that side. Why equity investors seem to be a little bit more sanguine about things, I think, is probably uh, a question that's going to be hard to answer, but it probably has a lot more to do just with the positioning that was already uh, out there prior to this and just the idea that a lot of folks really aren't willing to unravel those trades. I have a theory. And What's I'm not that? allowed to because I'm 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 sitting here as as a host. But but how much can you end up saying that lower yields is a persistence of the Goldilocks environment? Basically, uh, there just is no alternative at a certain point when you have 10.6 trillion dollars of bonds globally that have negative yields. When you have 10-year Treasury yields that are at the lowest since 2017. When you have a Federal Reserve that may be poised to cut rates, mm-hmm. this is going to be supportive at a certain point for risk assets because companies can borrow cheaply. And frankly, uh, if you earn anything, it might be better than nothing at all on government bonds. Mike? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it helps explain why we really are only down 4% from the record. Look, the S&P is still up 13% on the year. It's not like, uh, you know, this is a doomsday scenario. But it, 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 
feels like it should be more risk off given that these trade tensions are not going away. If anything, they look like they're they're set to get worse. I mean, I love that you keep seeing more and more drastic scenario analysis going on. Like, well, <laughs> totally. what if what if the tariffs are raised to this? What if that? So there was a, a Cowan analyst outside. Well, what will happen to Apple if right. the iPhone is completely banned from China? Yes, down twenty six percent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, you know the. The direness of the scenarios keep getting made more dire and dire, and yet here we are, four percent off the peak. So certainly, the the low rates I think are helping to some degree. Also, mm. just I think the average uh, trader investor in equities, at least, maybe not in the bond market, but in equities, I, I feel like they think this is still just posturing that President Trump will come around. I mean, I think that's a dangerous assumption to make, um, especially you know because the election's still a year and a half away. There's yeah. you know it, it could sort of spiral out of control, but I think. You know, the, the hope at least maybe is that, you know, he's willing to accept a little bit of equity roughness now because then he can reach a deal and, and cause a rally when it benefits him more in the, in the election season. Romaine? I don't see any conviction in, in this rally. I mean, uh, you, you know, it's you're seeing buying, but this isn't really sustained buying. We haven't had an update of more than 1% in probably since, what, late March, early April. Uh, most of the gains that we've had uh, over the last, you know, over the month of May uh, on a daily to day basis have been pretty tepid. So, I mean, this is more of a market that's really been trading sideways. I also hear people always talking, oh, we're only off, you know, 4% off the peak, which is true. But, you know, we were also off, you know, 3% off that peak, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, I, I just, you know, we've sort of been mired, I think, in sort of a standstill. And I think it shows you a lack of conviction. Uh, on both sides, uh, in terms of the bulls pushing this higher, but also on the bearish side, too. I don't think there are a lot of people that are willing to sort of get out in front of the bearish uh, side of the equation either. And then so we're going to get this trading environment right now. And it'll be interesting to see once we get past the end of the month rebalancing and into June and into the summer months here uh uh, whether that actually has a more of a dampening effect on the trading. But, Rubin, aren't we seeing more conviction with specific stocks? You are seeing a lot. I mean, sure. I mean, we talk to people all the time, uh, a lot of money managers who say this has become much more of a stock picking environment. And I think when you break down sector by sector and look at those individual names, you definitely see uh, a lot of outperformers, uh, the companies that are particularly uh, – growing both on the top line and have good margin expansion. And uh, that seems to be where investors are gravitating to. You're not getting the type of sort of basket trades that we had through, you know, the better part of this bull market. So, Mike, you say that there's still a lot of optimism baked into the market. Where are you seeing it most? Well, I, I mean that just in that, you know, you would think these headlines would be pulling us down a lot more. Um, I, so I think the fact that we haven't really sold off to, say, a 10% correction or, or gotten above 4%. Uh, remember, the guys at J.P. Morgan, you know, uh, looked in the crystal ball and said the four percent is is the Trump put. It's if it gets any worse than that, then he's going to say something to to goose the market. Who, who made the comment last week about the Trump collar? Was that was that uh, Marco uh, Kalanovich? I might have been. Yeah, yeah. Which I, a couple I, which, people have said. Which it, I thought that was sort of an interesting way of, yeah. of sort of characterizing. I mean, we can't talk about the Trump put, but it does seem that uh, his is his actions or his behavior is sort of having sort of a kind of a squeeze on both the top and the bottom. Right. And maybe that keeps us, you know, I mean, I mean, it's hard to read 
your price in, I guess, what he's going to do specifically because he is kind of a volatile it's character. Pretty unpredictable, yeah. But yeah. but it is sort of I think having a little bit of dampening effect on both sides. The Trump necktie. Romaine Bostic, <laughs> markets correspondent for Bloomberg. Mike Regan, uh, senior markets editor and co-host of the What Goes Up podcast. And of course, you can also find Romaine in the afternoons on What You Miss. You're both sticking with me. Uh, we're going to be speaking about a Chinese company that is looking to raise a bunch of cash. So we're talking to Alibaba. Uh, that is coming up uh, right now in the markets. You are seeing definitely a shrugging off of the escalation of a trade war, tech war, call it what you will. NASDAQ leading the charge as yields plow further lower. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, Guy Johnson and Jonathan Farrow both off today. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. Just gone 5.40 p.m. in the city of London. We are looking at markets uh, in the U.S. that are trying to stage a rally, a somewhat of a surprise rally, given President Trump's hardening rhetoric uh, around China trade talks. And you did get some deals. You did get some uh, not terrible news out of some specific companies. But still, uh, not a lot of explanation here other than perhaps technical rejiggering. Mike wants to explain something that he does not have conviction about. But we want to change our uh, view right now. We want to take a look at Alibaba. Uh, and still with me, Mike Regan and Romaine Bostic, both of Bloomberg Television Radio, the terminal, everything under the sun. Uh, so Alibaba, considering raising $20 billion via a second listing in Hong Kong, comes after the record-breaking 2014 New York debut. Uh, this according to people who spoke with Bloomberg, but this is sort of interesting to see that Alibaba is shifting its fundraising to China, not the U.S. Uh, evidently, people are saying that Alibaba is going to file a listing application in Hong Kong confidentially as early as the second half of this year. Uh, Romaine, what do you make of this? Uh, yeah, this seems, I think, a little bit more... Uh political than it is sort of uh, fundamental. I mean, the company, you know, doesn't really need the cash per se. And, uh, you know, the fact that it would choose to not only go for a listing of this size, but to do it specifically uh, in Hong Kong uh, instead of uh, another listing here in the U.S., uh, I think says a lot about sort of just the dynamics of uh, of the trade relationship that we're in right now between the U.S. and China. And maybe it is sort of a way for Alibaba to sort of position itself for what I think a lot of people think is going to be a much different sort of a global landscape. So is this political or is this sort of battening down the hatches and raising enough capital, uh, you know, for, for whatever comes? Are, are these two things mutually exclusive, Mike? Uh, no, I, I think maybe they, they go hand in hand. I mean, $20 billion, geez, it's not this company does not uh, raise capital in a small way. That It's so big it's that there's- a small company. <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> right, but but $20 billion in Hong Kong, they're saying it's such a big raise, it could affect the, the value of the Hong Kong dollar. I mean, you know when your, your equity offer is affecting the the value of the currency you're where you're listing it's a it's a pretty big deal but I think uh, you know not to go back to Trump uh, but you kind of have to uh, a few people I've talked to some you know smart investor types uh, still bring up the name Steve Bannon and regardless of the fact he's not in the White House anymore they still view him as sort of the influencer on Trump's brain and we get in this morning and lo and behold, what's one of the most read stories is an interview Steve Bannon gave in, I think, Kazakhstan. Of yeah, all yeah. Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. Yeah, yeah, it's the epicenter yeah. for Steve Bannon's. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 he, those are his words. I know, mine. Yeah. Kazakhstan. But, but he was saying Trump's got to go all in on the trade war and not um, just the tariffs, but ban Chinese companies from U.S. capital markets. 
and actually ban a wide assortment of technology experts uh, to China. So, you know, I'm not saying the two are linked, but, you know, uh, it, it reeks of Alibaba, you know, like you said, wanting Come on. Bannon doesn't have any political clout right now in the U.S. I th- and I th- he's even been shunned by EU leaders when he did a tour there. No, even- I think I think as a thought leader, he's he's, uh, you, know, well, you know, I hate to use thought leader, but I still think his his ideas are influential on. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I sort of agree. I mean, well, look, first of all, there's a reason why he's in Kazakhstan and, and not doing interviews in the U.S. right now. Uh, but I will say this, though, I think that the sentiment uh, that he expresses is shared uh, by some folks who are still in the White House Agreed. who still have Trump's ear. And Fair. I think that when you see the ban on uh, Huawei, or the, the de facto ban on Huawei and some of the other measures that the Trump administration is taking, it uh, does sort of sort of fit with Bannon's sort of narrative of just sort of, you know, really going for the jugular yeah. and really altering their relationship. So, you know, again, this isn't about restricting imports. This is about saying China can't do business with the U.S. until, you know, we sort of, you know, resolve whatever differences it is we have. In the, on the flip side, I wonder how much of Alibaba's share offering that they have planned will be bought up by the PBOC. That is something else we can discuss uh, at another time. Mike Regan and uh, Romaine Bostic, both of you sticking with us. Coming up, we're going to take a look at inflation. We're expecting a key measure this Friday out from the Fed as five-year uh, break-even rates fall to their lowest since earlier this year. This comes despite the fact that oil is actually gaining. It's actually rallying. So uh, we're going to dig into whether this is sort of an overreaction yet again of markets totally discounting the resurgence of inflation. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Lisa Abramowitz in for Guy Johnson and Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. Almost 5.49 p.m. in the city of London. We are looking in the U.S. at gains. NASDAQ up five-tenths of 1%. Both the S&P and Dow uh, trying to be about up two-tenths of 1%. The story, though, really is uh, the bond market. We are looking at yields lower across the board, led by longer-term U.S. securities. You can see that 10-year Treasury yields now are, are 2.27%. That is the lowest uh, since October 2017. They've been falling. Actually, now it's September 2017. They've been falling all day, uh, deepening. Meanwhile, you've got the negative yielding vortex over in Europe uh, that is expanding. And I am so pleased to have with me Mike Regan and Romaine Bostic, both of our Bloomberg uh, Media Complex here at our 731 Lexington Avenue, New York City headquarters. Thank you both for being here. So, uh, Romaine, I want to start with you. Uh, Looking forward to the rest of the week, we are looking at a PCE reading. This is the key inflation metric that the Mm -hmm. Federal Reserve looks at that's coming out on Friday. Meanwhile, I'm looking at five-year break-even rates and expectation of uh, inflation falling to their lowest since the beginning of January, well below the Fed's uh, 2% target. What are we expecting from on Friday's PCE reading? How important is it? Well, it's important. I mean, we know, I mean, the, the, the estimate is for about 1.6%, which is pretty much where it's kind of been mired at uh, for a while. And that's below, obviously below the 2% mark. I mean, people are looking for sort of any signs that it's even 
trending upward. I mean, we remember we had it sort of trend upward back in uh, sort of like late 20 in 2017. And I think a lot of people thought, okay, we I think we did briefly hit that 2% target, but it didn't really hold uh, past a, a couple of months. And so I think people want to see uh, that it's headed in that direction and that it can stay in that direction uh, to sort of affirm uh, what the Fed's goals are. But uh, honestly, I'm not sure it's going to get there. I think, uh, you know, pretty much every economist that we've surveyed, uh, every market strategist we've talked to says that it's kind of a pipe dream uh, that we're going to get there. Why? This is the question, Mike. Why is uh, inflation remaining so persistently low? Oh, boy. You know, you ask 10 different economists and you get uh, 15 different answers, uh, technology and cheap overseas labor and, you know, strong dollar. Um, but as far as the Fed, I mean, I think the million dollar question is, what does it mean for the Fed? I think, uh, you know, this kind of would back up their sort of transitory notion, or at least give them buy them time to argue that uh, this low inflation is transitory enough that um, to keep them on hold. I don't think you know it's going to be the type of thing that would get them to actually cut. But what I am looking forward to is next week the ISM manufacturing. Um, because that thing has really come down a lot. It's now, uh, last reading was 52.8, the lowest since the the month Trump was elected in 2016. Uh, 50, obviously, is the dividing line. If you get below 50 on that, and to be sure, the the consensus is for it to inch up a little bit to 53.3, but um, a lot of the similar reports have been pretty weak. You know, the Dallas Fed report today was pretty weak. The market... uh, version of the manufacturing ISM was pretty weak. If that thing starts getting closer and closer to 50 or below, then I think it really makes those rate cut scenarios look a little bit more plausible. And I'm glad you bring up that data too, because I mean, we talk so much about the the idea of hitting these inflation targets. And we kind of, I think a lot of times we sort of take out the the aspect of, of slowing growth or at least that growth not sort of meeting the targets. And we sort of forget that, you know, despite some of the reading, the high readings that we had over the last couple of quarters and some of the bullish projections we're getting uh, elsewhere, I mean, most of the market right now really isn't buying into this idea of sort of sustained high uh, global growth, whether it's, you know, we're not just talking about the U.S., but when you kind of put the whole basket together, and that's going to have some deflationary aspects, uh, and, and it's probably going to potentially maybe keep some of these central banks uh, in check. Are tariffs inflationary or deflationary? Well, uh, I, I mean, in theory, I mean, they're inflationary. I mean, we had a column uh, on the Bloomberg uh, today from Gary Schilling, who basically made the case that it does have a deflationary impact, uh, particularly because it uh, it becomes a drag on global growth, and that that in itself can be deflationary. And then, of course, you know, we've seen uh, uh, through this earnings season, you know, quite a few companies talk about just how reticent they were to pass along costs to consumers. Yeah. Uh, a few companies did manage to get away with it, but quite a few we heard uh, on conference calls when questioned by analysts why they. They said they just really didn't feel like they had the ability to do that. There is a fear out there. Uh, there's so much competition. There's a fear out there that if they raise prices, uh, consumers are just going to substitute with something else. Mike? Right. Well, and to get to that that growth idea, did you notice uh, that we had this interview with uh, Jamie Dimon? I actually spoke at a, a banking conference. It was an interview. And they put it on there, the, the JP Morgan's chief economist have cut their forecast for current quarter, second quarter growth, to 1% yeah. for, for the second quarter. Yeah, and, and in that commentary, Jamie Dimon was saying that he actually thinks that uh, that recently there's been a shift. Trade war isn't going anywhere. The rhetoric is hardening. I do have to wonder, and this is one big question that I've gotten very unfulfilling answers to, which is how much of what we're seeing in the global growth slowdown is due to trade skirmishes? How much? is due to sort of a waning of this credit cycle? Um, 
I would guess more trade just because I think there's a paralyzing effect on CEOs and decision makers. If you you know the tariffs are coming, but you're not sure if they'll be reversed in six months, it kind of it kind of makes it very difficult to uh, to you know make your decisions. You know that said, maybe the credit cycle sort of gets joined at the hip uh, to to the the growth outlook uh, to some degree. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think trade. I, I mean, as far as the paralysis, I mean, you also have this sort of this sort of reallocation of uh, of the supply chain that is just going to take a lot of time uh, for the companies that are willing to do it. So, so you have those that are sort of paralyzed and those that are trying to make moves. Uh, there's a huge sort of uh, cost curve that they're dealing with right now. But uh, look, if this trade war, at least at this stage of the trade war that we're in, if this had started, I don't know, five years ago or six years ago, I don't know if you had seen the same imp- the negative impact. Uh, on the markets. I think that we would have been in a different place on mm. terms of the business cycle, a different place in terms of the market cycle. And I think that you would have seen confidence hold up a little bit more. But you already had coming into this trade cycle, sentiment was down. We were worried about the end of the cycles. And now you throw in the trade aspects. Romain Bostic, Mike Regan, both of you, thank you so much uh, for being here today. Coming up, we also get uh, France CPI, German unemployment, Italy up manufacturing consumer confidence. That is tomorrow, uh, the day after crude oil inventory report from the EIA, uh, U.S. jobless claims. And on Friday, of course, we get that uh, CPI from Italy and Germany, PCE from the U.S. You can listen back to all of our interviews on BloombergRadio.com or on your Bloomberg Radio Plus app.